All right, guys. Now we can open up our Bibles. Um, we're going to be in, no surprise here, Luke's Gospel, chapter 8, verses 22 to 25 is, is what we'll be looking at this morning. If you need a Bible, uh, these guys will get you one if you'd raise your hand. If you don't want to have one on your lap, please. That is how I know you're holding me accountable to teaching God's truth instead of just what's on my mind. Uh, please get a Bible in front of you and, and let's look at this together. All right, I'll read, pray, and we will dive in. Luke 8, verse 22 says this. One day he, Jesus, got into a boat. With his disciples. And he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. And there was a calm. He said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. Let's pray. God, we want to see you today. Jesus, we want to behold something of your glory, something of your majesty, your power, your goodness. I know, Lord, that there are some in this room who feel like they're in deep and troubled waters, who feel in over their heads. And Christ, I'm praying that this wouldn't just be a story in a dusty old book for us this morning. I'm praying that it would be the vehicle, this word would be the vehicle by which you come into this room, get into their story, their troubled waters, their boat, and help. God, we need you. And just together we say it, Jesus, we, we need you. So we pray that you would come. Delight in meeting the needs of your children for the glory of your great name. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Don't have much by way of introduction, or if you know me well, here's... What you know, I had a huge introduction and I cut it out last night for your sake. Uh, so here is what I will at least give you um, before we dive in. This text essentially reveals a process that Jesus is always in one way or another taking his disciples through. Um, 
I'm going to try to unfold this process, uh, bring it out for us here this morning so you can see it. You can uh, identify how it's happening in your life and we can participate in this and even worship Jesus for how merciful and good he is to engage in this process with us. There are really three basic steps to this, and I'm just going to attach a single word to each one. First, whirlwind. Second, disclosure. Third, alignment. Whirlwind, disclosure, and alignment. That's the roadmap for this morning. So first, whirlwind. I want you to read uh, verses 22 and 23 again with me here as we consider this. One day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep in a windstorm or in the Greek, a whirlwind or even uh, a hurricane. That sort of is the, is the concept. A whirlwind came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger. I want to make two simple observations here. One, Jesus ordains the whirlwind. Two, Jesus sleeps through the whirlwind. First, Jesus ordains the whirlwind. With regard to this observation, what we see is that when Jesus calls his disciples into the boat here, it's not as if he's expecting a pleasant voyage and is like uh, uh, sadly you know, interrupted and surprised by this whirlwind that descends upon him. It's not as if Jesus forgets to check the weather and it's kind of like, oh, bros, I'm sorry. I should have read that in the clouds or in the sky And now look at where we are. I I think I can get us out of this. Give me a moment. It's not what we have here at all. It's really quite the opposite. Jesus not only checks the weather, he ordains the weather. He knows the storm is coming and he says, guys, let's get in the boat and go into it. Now, the second observation I made really stands in support of this first observation, namely that he sleeps through the whirlwind. I, I love how Mark describes it. I had, I had to bring this out because I just think it's awesome. Mark describes this scene. So, so Matthew and Mark also, also record this story. Uh, Mark describes this scene in this way. This is Mark 4.38. He was, Jesus, in the stern, asleep on a cushion. (laughs) So here's the picture that I have. Uh, The disciples are running around frantic in the boat going, oh my gosh, what do we do? We're taking on water. We're going to die. We're on the edge of death. And Jesus is like lounging in the stern, laying on a pillow. Just chilling out, sleeping like a baby. No problems, no cares at all in the world. That's the picture right now between these men, or us even, and what our God is doing. But what exactly does this little detail mean? He is sleeping right here in this scene, in this terrifying scene. What does it mean that Jesus 
is sleeping. Because I think it's a significant detail. Uh, in fact, the story contains, at least to my knowledge, as I looked through the scriptures, did you know a search for certain words and things in the Gospels, I couldn't find another uh, explicit reference to Jesus sleeping. Now we know that, of course, he slept. We know that he rested. But that detail is never uh, drawn attention to until this story. And only here. And so the question that I naturally have is, well, why? Why here? Why now? What, what are the gospel writers trying to communicate? What's the spirit trying to communicate to us that, you know, with, by the fact that this is the only place Jesus has said to just be asleep? Well, I'm pretty sure it's not because God or the authors are trying to tell us that Jesus is just a really deep, solid, sound sleeper. <laughs> uh, did you have one of those dads? I, I did. One of the, my dad, I mean, it's seven or eight o'clock at night after dinner, I mean, it was over. It was lights out for him. He'd go into his office and without fail, he'd be like on the floor. I could, he was in a different spot every time. So sometimes he was on the couch. Sometimes he was on the floor. And it was, he was down for the count. It was over. The, the house could be on fire. And my mom and I would have to figure out what to do. His daddy wasn't waking up. I don't think that's what is going on here. I don't think that's the point of the detail. It's not to say... That Jesus is a deep sleeper. The point is that Jesus is in control. So in control that he can sleep through the very things that awaken and terrify us. He's not worried about it. Whirlwind. He has authority over it. I think that's the point. That's the point. So... I wonder, do you have anything keeping you up these nights? Do you have anything that you just keep turning in your mind and, and rolling it around and your body kind of follows suit? You turn and you're rolling and tossing and turning in your bed. Just can't sleep, just worried, just owned, gripped, whatever it is by this whirlwind, so to speak, in your life. I want you to hear me on the authority of this text. Jesus is asleep. You have to think figurative with me here. Obviously, I know he doesn't sleep. Our God doesn't sleep or slumber. What I mean is he's in control. We often think He's asleep, right? But we think he's asleep because he's neglecting us. He's forgotten us. He's abusing us. He's off duty when he should be watching. It's not what his sleep means. It means like we read at the end uh, after his resurrection and he's commissioning his disciples about to ascend to the Father. He says, listen, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then we're told he goes and he what? Sits down at the right hand of the Father. That's what his sleep means. It means he sat down. Royal rest. I am in control. 
There is nothing that can stir the waters of my heart, my mind. He is perfect peace because he's in perfect control. So I know that the whirlwind is scary. I know that it's hard. He's planning, he's purposing, he's working even in the whirlwind for our good. We can hold on to him. He's with us in the boat. And I just thought, man, what a what a word for this time when you can barely turn on the news, right, without catching, no pun intended, wind of the next hurricane or earthquake that's coming our way. I mean, just yesterday, more, I looked on the news, hitting Mexico, aftershocks or whatever. Just, wow, what a month we have had and what a word this is for us. So first, whirlwind. Second, now, disclosure. Disclosure. What's Jesus looking to do in all of this? What's he after with these disciples in a boat, in a raging sea? What's his plan, in other words, for the whirlwind? If he ordains it, if he's sleeping through it, if he has a purpose for this, and he's in control, what is he trying to accomplish by bringing this group of fishermen, largely nonetheless, out here? Why bring them out into this storm? What is going on? What is he trying to accomplish? In a word, disclosure. He takes his disciples into the whirlwind to show them something about himself. To show them something about himself. Read verses 24 and 25 with me again here real quick. They went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. And there was a calm. And then skip to the second part of verse 25. They were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. So there are things that we see of God in the whirlwind that we cannot see in the calm. I'll say that one more time because I think it's important. There are things that we can see of God in the whirlwind that we cannot see of him in the calm. He takes them into the whirlwind to disclose something about himself, to get them to the place of who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him. There's revelation that comes in the whirlwind. Revelation that often can come no other way. We, we, We live, it seems to me, just by nature, with this sort of illusion of control. We uh, like to think that we can work our way out of any problem. We find false 
assurance in our technologies, in our scientific advances, in our medicines, in our you know structures, our securities. We think that we can handle it. Modern man is so arrogant and so self-important. But the whirlwind, brothers and sisters, puts us back in our place. The whirlwind reminds us, and that's why, I, that's why I made that note, that a lot of these guys were fishermen. This is their profession. They own the water. And they're going, we're dying here. We, we don't have what it takes to get through this. The whirlwind puts us back in our place, reminds us that we are just a speck, on a speck, in a speck, in the midst of a universe, endless expanse, over which alone God sits enthroned. Right? And the whirlwind brings us to face that. Shows us, my goodness, I can't even control whether I live to see tomorrow or die on my bed tonight. That's what we start to get. Reality gets raw in the whirlwind and we start to see things like Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, even I am he. There's no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. That's what you feel in those moments. If God doesn't spare me, I can't do anything about this. And so we're brought down to size. And he's elevated in our eyes. Don't you feel that when Irma or Maria comes to your town? It's whirlwind. We're perishing. We have nothing here. Where's our technology now? Or don't you feel that even here in California when we hear about you know, 8.1 or whatever, the earthquake, or they call it Temblor there in Mexico, just due south of us. It's in our neighborhood. It's in our neighborhood. When is the ground going to start shaking beneath my feet? Megan and I were up talking about this just the other night. You look on the news and, and it's like, man, the big one's coming for California. You know? We're like, gosh, where's the San Andreas actually run? Oh my, there's San Jose, there's a San Andreas. It's like right underneath me right now. And with all of our technology, there is nothing we can do to stop the shifting of tectonic plates. All we can do is stand before the God of the world and say, help! We can't do it. Only you can. So... In all of this, in the whirlwind, our eyes are cleared of self-importance, of vainglory, and we are readied to behold something of God. We kind of actually come back into sanity and we are readied to see something about His majesty, about who God really is. This is why we read, and it's interesting that uh, Ian, when we were in the back, prayed about reading through Job. And uh, 
I was thinking about Job as I got to this point, because in, in Job 38, 1, in Job 46, verse 6, when God finally addresses him, after all this turmoil, all this trial, all this disorienting chaos, all this whirlwind that came for Job, here's what we read. The Lord answers Job out of the whirlwind. It's in the midst of that chaos, in the midst that God discloses something of himself to us. He speaks out of the whirlwind, out of the chaos. He brings peace there. But I wonder if he's doing this even in your life right now. You feel like that's where you're at. You feel like he's sleeping, but it's not this nice he's in control thing. It's he's abandoned you and you're wondering what he's doing. My contention from this text is to say he's getting ready to show you something glorious. But we can't get ahead of ourselves in this line of thinking here because we, we need to make note that this process is not automatic. In other words, the whirlwind itself does not guarantee that we behold or receive any disclosure from him at all. It's not as if he takes us to the whirlwind and we automatically receive vision from him. There is another step, something else that goes on here. And we get this because... We can probably think of countless examples, people we know, uh, people we've, you know, stories we've heard where trials and suffering, whirlwind experiences did not bring people closer to Jesus. They did not give them a better vision of him. In fact, quite the opposite, pushed him away. That's why they left is because it got hard. We read about this last week with one of those soils, right? And the seed that's dropped in and shoots up with joy when it's good. And then the trial comes, the whirlwind comes and withers away. Not better vision of God, disclosure, but forget you, God, I'm out of here. So there's something that happens in between uh, uh, the whirlwind and disclosure that's very important for us to make note of. It's not an automatic uh, experience. Something goes on in my heart in the midst of the whirlwind that gets me ready for this disclosure. You see, these disciples get it right here. And I want us to learn from them. Yes, they are awake in fear when they could be sleeping in trust. That's true. But at least they go to the right place with their fears. And that's what makes the difference. You see it there in verse 24. They went and woke him. (laughs) Wake up! We need you to help. And that is a big big uh, observation to make because what I have found a lot of times at least with me when the whirlwind descends sometimes sadly Jesus is the last one I go to like when all options have run out instead we kind of bend inwards a lot of times we bend inwards and we start looking for solutions and figuring out our action plans and and making sure we have all of our ducks in a row so we can get out of this mess or in the case of these guys they grab buckets and they start and they get their patch kit and they're putting the boat back together and then finally Jesus get out here and help us 
No, the first thing they do, go wake him up. I mean, we're, we need Jesus here. I have um, derived great encouragement from this book. Actually, the elders and I have been reading. the. It's called The Imperfect Pastor by Zach Eswine. It's It's amazing. I'll probably bring in more and more details from it for you guys uh, from time to time. But one of the things he mentions almost just in passing, and it's profound, is this idea of psalm making. Psalm making. I'm not saying we're inspired writers of the psalms, but that that, that we participate like the psalmist in, in making psalms from our heart to God. Okay, Psalm Making is what he's talking about. Now he contrasts psalm making with self-talking. Self-talk is what we do if you're if you're uh, 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 a uh, observant human being and, and able to kind of watch your own heart and, and mind. You will see that self-talk is what we're doing all day long. It's how we process the world around us. We process the world around us by talking to ourselves. We might call it thought, that's fine, but it's self-talk. And we need to be aware of what's going on in there as we talk to ourselves. So think about this with me. When a person hurts us, when someone Maybe you even think of them right now. When someone you feel like really abused you, really just kicked you while you were down, hurt you, what do we do? Well, typically, we talk to ourselves about it after the fact. Why would they do that to me? How could they be so mean? What will I do? What will I say about it in the next time I see him if I can you know, have the chance and build up a little courage? We start to process the world around us talking to ourselves about it. Or when the boss calls you into his office. Right? What happens is you're walking down that hall. You're talking to yourself, aren't you? Oh, what did I do? Oh, my gosh. Okay, yeah, my numbers haven't been that good. Oh, no, it's going to be over. I know it. He's going to tell me that, you know, it's, he's going to kick me to the curb and my family and I, what are we going to do? I'm going to have to figure something out. Oh, no. We're talking to ourselves. Right? Or here's an example from my own life, and it's silly, but it's not so silly. When I was... Um, Preparing this message, I uh, knock, I was sitting at my desk and I knocked over my tea by accident, right? Spilled it all over my desk. What do I do as I'm processing the world around me? Well, I self-talk. Here's what I say. <laughs> Here's what I say. This sort of thing always happens to me. I can never get anything done. It's either kids or it's emails or it's text or it's tea. It's all the time. I can't focus. I'm talking to myself. In essence, I'm preaching to myself. I'm justifying a foul mood. I'm essentially preaching to myself that God's word is not true, that he is not present with me. That's what I'm doing when I bend inwards and just talk to me. So try to pause. I encourage you throughout your day. And catch yourself doing this. And just make note. What's happening in my heart? What's happening inside? What's going on? What am I saying? 
Is this line with Jesus or not? What? Here's, here's Zach uh, Eswine's counsel for us. Take all that inward bending self-talk and bend it outwards to God like the psalmist. Take all the stuff that starts to go this way and say, no, 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 we're going, we're going up and we're going out. I'm taking it to the one who can really help. Instead of just kind of counseling myself and talking to myself, I'm going to talk to God. You see, the, the psalmist is processing the world around him just as much as anyone else. The, the only difference is he's processing it in the presence of God. Instead of talking to himself, he's talking to God. He's talking to the one who can actually intervene, who has something to say about all of this. So when the whirlwind descended, we read, the disciples went and woke him. They go out before they go in. And brother, sister, if you are in the whirlwind, don't merely self-talk or self-soothe. Make a psalm. I'll read you this one from Psalm 69. A few of the verses. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep Swallow me up, or the pit closed its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. You see the difference? Self-talk when the floods rise. What do we do? Oh gosh, how did I get into this mess? I gotta get out. I knew God was against me. That's why He's doing this to me. Oh, I could grab a bucket, grab this, grab that. Self-talk over here. Save me. For your steadfast love, I know you can do it. Don't leave me alone. What do you want me to do in this moment? You give me the action plan. Right? There's something different between self-talk and psalm making. When you make a psalm like that in your heart to God, you ready your soul for disclosure. You prepare your eyes to behold something of the majesty of God. So in the case of these disciples, if we keep following with them, because they came to Jesus with their fears, they were granted a glimpse of his glory. Uh, In particular, to be more specific, it seems to me they were granted one of the clearest uh, visions of Christ's deity. Now, no uncertain terms is Jesus being presented here as God, as Yahweh to them. Let me show you this. Countless psalms in the Old Testament equate uh, God's unique authority, unique power with his ability to control or still the sea, the waters, the raging Waters. I'll just give you one example in Psalm 89, though, again, there are many. There are many. Psalm 89, verses 6 through 9 say this. Who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him? O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are. 
You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Do you hear what they're saying about Yahweh? The claim is, there is no other God like you. The basis of that claim is, because you can still the raging sea. Your God, you control the waters. That's how I know. The Godness of God is argued for on the basis of his ability to control the waters. And then, in a little boat, out with a few disciples, on the Sea of Galilee, in the dead of night, the other gospel narratives tell us, in the midst of a whirlwind, Jesus of Nazareth raises his voice, hush, be still, rebukes the wind and the waves, and there's a great calm. Conclusion, if you know your Bibles, Jesus is God. That's what these disciples got a glimpse of because they woke him up in their fear. We know that the disciples saw something of this, which is why I wonder if you notice. And this is huge because this is what God is trying to do in your whirlwinds right now. When Jesus stills the waves, the disciples' fear transfers. There's a transference of fear in these moments. It moves from the wind and the waves to the person who just exercised such radical authority and power in front of them. And they were, verse 25, afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? Fear is transferring here to its proper object. From the whirlwind to the Lord. They caught a view of Jesus as God. And their souls were ravaged by it. Is that the right word? Ravished? Maybe I can't remember the word. They were enamored. They were mesmerized. They were terrified. Oh, dear brothers and sisters, it occurs to me that um, before moving to my final point, I should say something about what this scene pictures. Um, you know my jealousy to always keep the cross before us, the gospel before us. And really, my jealousy for that is just in line with Jesus' jealousy. I see Jesus. I see God's passion for it. That's what we're going to focus on here at this church. That's where Jesus is ultimately going. That's why he's come. And and what we have here is essentially a picture for us of what he will do with an even greater, infinitely greater whirlwind. Right? Namely, the whirlwind of the wrath of God against our sin. The fury of a holy God 
against sinful people. I mean, forget the San Andreas. Forget it. I'm seriously. That exists. The curse on the the, the world, the, the cosmos exists. Because God is furious with sin. That's the point of the San Andreas. That's not the big problem. The big problem is, is when the San Andreas opens up, I fall not just to my grave, but into hell, unless God does something. Unless God can calm that whirlwind, you see, that storm, that rage. And that's what Jesus is ultimately preparing his disciples to see he's come to do. That he is, he is, he is holy, but he's also good, gracious. He's going to save. He's going to deliver. Here's the crazy thing, and it's a bit ironic, really, as I, as I thought about this. Um, in Gethsemane, the night before Jesus is going to be put to death on the cross, right? The night before all this stuff, the night when all this stuff starts going down, we're given these contrasting details uh, to the ones given in our story, and I... I thought it was worth bringing out. Because what do we see in the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus is contemplating what he must face? The cup that he, the cup of God's wrath that he will drink for us on the cross. What do we see? But Jesus finds no place for sleep, does he not? He's awake. He's praying. He's even uh, sweating drops of blood. He's so worked up about what he is about to face. And then, conversely, what do we have in the disciples? Jesus tells them, guys, stay awake. This is the big deal. This is the battle. Here we go. And they're sleeping. Just asleep. He comes back. What are you doing? Wake up and pray. Goes back and prays some more. Comes back. They're asleep again. What is going on? I couldn't get you guys to sleep on the boat. But now the real, the the, the war to end all wars, so to speak, is waging. And we don't see it. It's time to sleep. It's not time to sleep. Get up. Jesus Gets this. Jesus gets this. This is why he's come. This is what he's here to do. This is the problem behind all problems. It's the earthquake underneath all earthquakes. It's the hurricane, the wind behind all hurricanes, winds. This is it. It's why he's come. And on the cross, here's what's so amazing. It's as if he rebukes the whirlwind of the wrath of God against our sin. And he does it by throwing himself into it. So that three days later, when he comes up for air, the waters are calm. There's a great calm on the waters. The wrath of God has been fully satisfied. Sinners are right with God through Jesus Christ. The 
earthquake underneath the earthquake is healed. So now we can say, San Andreas, what you going to do? What are you going to take from me? My stuff? You have any idea the inheritance that's awaiting me in glory? You open up the earth and swallow me. I don't descend to hell. I rise to glory to sit with Christ next to the Father. That's what he's done. Is that amazing? Is that awesome? Third step in this process. First, whirlwind. Second, disclosure. Now, third, alignment. Alignment. If you notice there in uh, verse 25, I read past a question that Jesus asked because I wanted to focus on it here as we close. It's this question. He comes to them and says, where is your faith? Where's your faith? In other words, pull up a pillow. It's going to be all right. Where is your faith? And I'm seeing this as a call to alignment. Align yourselves with reality. Align yourselves with who I am. The image in my mind is, you know, with cars and things. And I'm not a car guy. I'll just say that up front. But I do know what it means when your car goes out of alignment. It means that you're driving down the road and you're aiming to stay in between the lines like a good citizen, except there's something that keeps pulling right or pulling left. You just you want to go straight, but you're going off. You're out of alignment. The same sort of thing happens in our souls, brothers and sisters, where We know things about God. Things have been disclosed to us about who God is, who Jesus is, what he's done. What he's accomplished. We've seen a lot of his faithfulness. And yet, and yet, when we kind of put the put the pedal down and we actually get on the road of life, a lot of times what we find is we still veer to the right or to the left. We're still still veering towards pride or anxiety or fear or depression, condemnation, whatever it is, jealousy, bitterness. We're still veering off the road, though we know who Jesus is and he would come to us. And ask, where is your faith? And you've got to think of all that the disciples have seen to this point of Jesus. I mean, they have seen the sick healed. Just a touch or a word. They have seen demons just come out of dudes. They have seen the dead raised. And now they're saying, it's over for us because of some water. You see why Jesus would say, where's your faith? Where's alignment with all that's been revealed to you? Now, I I don't know much about aligning cars. It has something to do with the tires and axles or something like that. I do have a little bit of a sense of what goes on when it comes to aligning a heart and a life to Jesus and his truth, his word. And it's not as complicated as you think. It involves the the ongoing, ever-important process of repentance and faith. I mean, this is ongoing. This is every day. Whoa, I was going off. God, I'm sorry. 
Thank you for what Jesus has done. Help me, Jesus. I believe. Help me with my unbelief. And get back on the road. Set your mind on truth. God, help me to trust you. This is why Jesus has come. He doesn't just leave us after he's calmed the waters of God's wrath, right? He calms the waters of God's wrath so that he can come inside of us and do the auto-mechanical work of aligning our hearts to God. He sends his spirit to help us, to call on him. Just own it. I'm sorry. Help me. Because we own it in light of the cross, knowing his forgiveness is ours. There's a power made available to us in him. I want you to think about this with me. What would your week look like if your heart and your life were aligned with the truths this text reveals to us about Jesus? If there was alignment here, what would it look like? What was just disclosed that, man, this one can, can, has authority over the waves and the wind. Over the whirlwind that terrifies us. Jesus is sleeping in it. What would that do for your week? What kind of risks would you take for Christ if you knew that this is who he is? That the wind and waves obey him? Or how freely would you forgive and love other people and dream of ways you can give and serve if you knew that he was with you in the boat? He's got you. Or how deeply could you experience his rest and even sleep? If you knew that he was sleeping over your life, so to speak, because he has it under control. And there's a peace that surpasses understanding. Circumstances say you should be losing your mind. Jesus in the boat with authority over all says, you can sleep. So alignment this week might sound something like David in Psalm 3, 5 and 6. When his very life was in jeopardy, here's what he writes. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Dogs are howling. Enemies are circling. And David is sleeping because he knows his God. There's alignment there. Last thing I'll leave you with very quickly is just this. Yes, it's true. Wonderfully, life-alteringly true that Jesus is in the boat with me. But that's not the whole story. It is also true and profoundly important that you, brothers and sisters, be in the boat with me as well. God doesn't just give us his son. He gives us one another. And we do this discipleship thing together. You see in that? We do this whirlwind disclosure alignment thing.
together. We follow behind Jesus together. There are people in this room stuck in the whirlwind and they need someone to come in the middle of it and help them see Christ. Something about Him and and, and text them and pray for them and, and hold them accountable. Their soul would be aligned with who He is and what He said. I need this. We all need this. Really, this is in essence what We've tried to encourage, albeit a little bit informally here, uh, with what we call DNA groups. Just smaller groups of people encouraging you guys to meet up in your office place or for lunch or at the neighborhood park with another mom. Just get into one another's lives and do this kind of thing. We call them DNA groups just means discovering Christ. In other words, disclosure. See who He is. Show me who He is. Let's find out who He is. Then nurturing those realities and for nurturing those realities in our hearts through repentance and faith. Who He is, I want to be aligned in it in my heart. And then A, for applying what we see in our lives and the alignment that comes out into my week. Discovering, nurturing, and applying, whirlwind, disclosure, uh, 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 alignment. It's all the same idea. We are disciples of Jesus and we're getting into one, of, one another's lives to help. To lean on one, on one another, to learn from one another. Yes, Jesus is in the boat with us and that is the most glorious reality of all. But important too is that we are in the boat with one another with Jesus as well. Let's pray. God, thank you that you have calmed the greatest rage and the greatest whirlwind of all. The wrath of a holy God against sinners. Jesus, thank you that you have shown yourself on the cross To be Lord over even death itself. That we throw ourselves upon you. We wake you up right now, Lord, with our prayers and with our hearts as we make psalms to you together in this boat on its way to glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.